Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. Thank you. Hi, everybody. Um, so I'm a historian at UCLA. I'm in the departments of history and African-American studies, and I've spent about the last 20 years working on race, incarceration, and immigration control in the United States. Um, I've written quite widely on Operation Wetback and the U.S. Border Patrol, and my new book you see here, City of Inmates, is about the rise of mass incarceration here in Los Angeles. Now, some of you may know, some of you may not know, but Los Angeles has the largest imprisoned population in the United States. And some research suggests that, in fact, Los Angeles has the largest imprisoned population in the world, meaning that no city on earth incarcerates more people than our hometown, Los Angeles. What that means to me is that Los Angeles, which is often known as the city of angels, is in fact the city of inmates, the carceral capital of the world. So what this book does is it it tracks the history of how Los Angeles came to a cage to incarcerate so many people from the very first moment of incarceration here during the Spanish colonial period right on up to the outbreak of the Watts Rebellion, which is really the beginning moment of this age of mass incarceration that we're in here today, but that we're living through today. So what this book does is it tracks out and it chronicles the prehistory of mass incarceration in the nation's carceral core here in Los Angeles. It's a book that's very much about L.A., but it also takes an L.A. perspective on the wider problem of mass incarceration across the United States. Um, now, to write this book, it took about seven or eight years of pretty hard research. And one of the reasons why it was so difficult is because the Los Angeles Police Department and the Los Angeles Sheriff's Department have destroyed the vast majority of their historical records. Um, when I first went looking for this, this information, the LAPD actually responded to me saying that they've saved no more than four boxes of their historical records. For as a historian, that's absolutely mind-blowing that the institution that is responsible for police Policing us and for caging us has not saved the records to make it possible for us to tell the story of what has happened to us. So in the beginning, this research was quite difficult. And what I found is I sort of moved across the city and dug through as many boxes as possible is that the people who have fought the rise of incarceration here in Los Angeles, the dissidents and the rebels, have kept a pretty extraordinary record of the rise of incarceration in this city. So in fact, what I un what I discovered as a rebel archive, that is the people who rebelled against incarceration in the city, and an archive that survived LAPD and LASD destruction, made it quite possible to tell the story of what happened here in this city. Now, um, the Rebel Archive had more than enough evidence for me to tell six very particular stories about the rise of incarceration here in Los Angeles. And what I'm going to do tonight is talk very briefly about each one of those six stories and then delve more deeply into just one of them. So the first story that the Rebel Archive allowed me to tell was about the first episode, the first trend of incarceration here in Los Angeles. And that first chapter of incarceration began during the Spanish colonial period, 
expanded during the Mexican period and exploded during the early American period. And the first people targeted, if you guys want to come on in and sit down, please do. The first people targeted for incarceration here in Los Angeles were indigenous peoples. Um, and they were largely incarcerated on the 1850 and 1860 acts for the government and protection of Indians here in California. Um, and in particular, they were policed and incarcerated on public order charges, in particular public drunkenness and vagrancy. So for the first hundred years of LA's history, it was indigenous peoples criminalized and incarcerated on public order charges who filled the jails of LA. Now the second story that the Rebel Archive allowed me to tell and to find is a very surprising story. The second community to be criminalized and targeted for incarceration here in Los Angeles were white men. Between the year 1880 and the year 1920, white men comprised almost 100% of the incarcerated population here in Los Angeles. And these men, too, were largely criminalized and incarcerated on public order charges, vagrancy, public drunkenness, and whatnot. And in addition to that, in fact, white men who were incarcerated during this time period, which is a period of extraordinary growth in Los Angeles, they were put on the chain gang and forced to build the streets and the schools and the churches around here. Sunset Boulevard was first cut and paved by white men on the chain gang. It's mind-blowing, right? Okay, now the third story that the Rebel Archive allowed me to tell was about the invention of a new form of human caging in the United States, and that form is known as immigrant detention. That did not exist in the United States until the 1890s. It was created during a moment of extraordinary anti-Chinese activity across the American West, and was tightly bound to the project of deportation. Now, one of the things that's so interesting is that in the 1890s, when this was first invented, when immigrant detention was first invented, it was a fairly obscure and rarely used practice of incarceration. But it is today probably one of the most rapidly growing forms of human caging across the United States. Um, It was indisputably racist and white supremacist in the 1890s, and I would argue, and we'll get into it in a little bit, it remains so today. Okay, now the fourth story that the Rebel Archive allowed me to tell was about the rise of the incarceration of Mexicans in the United States. Now, this is a history that we know almost nothing about. And one of the best places to tell this story is here in Los Angeles, or at least from the perspective of L.A. Now, Mexican incarceration in the United States first surged during the early 20th century. And I go and I track this story that it surged in Los Angeles and across the borderlands. And the people who were being targeted for incarceration were a group of dissidents from Mexico, known as the Magonistas, who were trying to foment a revolution in Mexico. All right, now the fifth story that the Rebel Archive made it possible to tell is also another story about the rise of Mexican imprisonment here in Los Angeles and across the borderlands. And it documents when, why, how, and with what consequences it first became a crime to enter the United States without authorization. That happened in the year 1929. So it was not always a crime to cross the U.S.-Mexico border or any U.S. border without authorization. That happened in 1929 with a particular politics. And this is the story that I'm going to get into today. Um, In particular, the criminalization of unlawful entry was part of a project to control Mexican immigration to the United States to make sure that Mexican immigrants would work here but not settle here in the United States. 
Okay, now the final chapter that I document in City of Inmates from this rebel archive is really the chapter that you cannot talk about mass incarceration without. And that's about the rise of black incarceration here in Los Angeles and in many ways across the United States. So black incarceration in L.A., many people presume that African Americans have always been targeted for incarceration here in the city, and that's not true. Black incarceration does not begin to spike until the 1920s and the 1930s. That, in fact, in 1900, black incarceration was really quite politically irrelevant um, and only slightly disproportionate. But by the 1920s and the 1930s, black incarceration was politically dominant, stunningly disproportionate, and chronically lethal. So there's a very tight relationship between police brutality and mass incarceration in black L.A. And so the final chapter that I dig out of this rebel archive and I tell in this book is about the relationship between police brutality and mass incarceration in black L.A. And I chronicle this through the first recorded killing of a young black male um, on April 24th, 1927, which happened in South Central. And then I talk about the extraordinary protest movement that followed in the wake of this killing. Okay, so those are the six stories that I tell in City of Inmates. And at first glance, they may seem quite disconnected. What do these six stories have to do with one another? How could they fit into one book and be part of a single thread? These stories range from the Spanish colonial era to the outbreak of the 1965 Watts Rebellion. They address issues from vagrancy laws, immigration control, to police brutality, and they churn through a variety of communities at different moments in time. But, as I argue in City of Inmates, these six stories do align together. And in particular, they align on the arc of conquest across the United States, and in particular, within the story of settler colonialism in the American West. Now, let me spend a couple of minutes talking about settler colonialism. It's a very hot and popular topic among academics and among many organizers and activists. But we all use it in our own way. So let me talk really quickly about how I use it. Now, I'm not sure if this video works, but if you do have phones, I encourage you to look at it. It's called The Invasion of America, and you can find it at ehistory.org or on YouTube. And what it does is it documents the territorial growth of the United States across the 19th century through every war and treaty conducted with indigenous populations, showing us how the United States went from 13 small colonies to conquests across the entire North American continent. Now, what this map helps us to understand that the United States is not just a democracy, but in fact it's a settler state. Now, a settler state is created by a particular strain of colonization that um, is called settler colonialism. What's important about this is that resource extraction, such as mining, and labor exploitation, such as chattel slavery, are not the principal goals of settler colonial projects. A settler colonial project such as the base of the United States, is a project that seeks land. And on that land, the colonists envision building a, a new racially exclusive and sexually reproductive society. They have no intention of melding with or dominating over indigenous populations. The goal is to obliterate and remove indigenous peoples and to replace them with a racially homogeneous and sexually reproductive colonial society. So the United States is in fact not a democracy, but a white settler society. 
Um, in the words of Audre Lorde, the extraordinary African-American poet, the way that we can understand settler colonialism in the United States is that, quote, we were never meant to survive. Yes, we were dragged across the Atlantic, and yes, we were forced to labor, but there was never an envision, a vision for black survival in the United States, nor for many other communities. Um, you can see this vision most clearly. Um, actually, you can see this on display at the Autry Museum near the zoo. Um, this is a very famous painting created in 1872 by Thomas Gast. It's called American Progress, and it's really the vision of manifest destiny about white settler societies pushing across the continent, removing indigenous populations, and not con including non-white peoples. So this is the vision that really defines the development of the American West in particular. Now to create this, the settlers waged wars with indigenous communities. We now call those the Indian Wars. They adopted anti-miscegenation laws. They attempted to ban African Americans, Mexicans, Chinese immigrants, and many others from immigrating into this region. And they invested in incarceration, spurring a phenomenal carceral boom by broadly caging a diverse caste of native landholders and racialized outsiders, um, people who they regarded as illegal trespassers, illegal immigrants, as non-white persons within this white settler society. In Los Angeles in particular, a community that was created out of a vision of creating what historian Kevin Starr has called the Aryan City of the Sun. White settlers here in Los Angeles built one of the largest systems of human caging that in fact the world has ever known, that we live with today. Now this project of human caging in Los Angeles, the so-called Aryan City of the Sun, began with criminalizing and caging up the indigenous peoples of the region, the Tongva, Gabrielino, and Kij nations. In particular, the U.S. settlers criminalized native landlessness and leisure, locking up anyone found with liquor and without work. And this is happening at the same moment that a campaign of genocide is happening against native peoples of California. This was really quite an extraordinary project that not only removed native peoples from the street and put them in the jail, but subjected them to the extraordinary conditions of incarceration in Los Angeles, which branded native peoples as vagrants and as outcasts in a community that their um, villages and their families had dominated for thousands of years, and exposed them to all sorts of diseases that helped to accelerate indigenous and native population decline throughout the 19th century. By 1880, the indigenous population of the Tongva Basin, what we know now as Los Angeles, had been driven down 93%. This was a project of native elimination that was happening here in Los Angeles through the first carceral project in our city. By 1880, because this indigenous population had been driven so low through genocide and through incarceration and other practices, um, the practices of incarceration here in Los Angeles changed. In particular, the settlers criminalized and caged up thousands upon thousands of poor white men, but especially the poor white men, itinerant men, who had been dislocated by the rise of corporate capitalism after the U.S. Civil War, and men who were widely disparaged for being so-called tramps and hobos, for migrating constantly, for living in homosocial all-male communities, and loving in homosexual ways. So these white men either could 
could not or would not abide by the settler ideals of um, heading nuclear families, of acquiring native land, and of permanently setting down. So in Los Angeles and across the American West, authorities caged up these white men, making the U.S. West, not the American South by the turn of the 20th century, home to the highest rate of incarceration in the United States. Now, if any of you have been reading the works on the rise of mass incarceration in the United States, there's one storyline that dominates, and that is that we go from the plantation to Jim Crow to the new Jim Crow. I don't dispute that at all. What I'm saying is that when we look at this story from the American West, we see some other trends and threads within it, and that here at the turn of the 20th century, it was not African Americans who were being targeted for incarceration and put on the chain gang. It was poor white men. And that's a story that upends our understanding of what's happening and what's at play. The project was not simply to cage them up and force them to build Sunset Boulevard, but to eject them, to remove them, to banish them from this Aryan city of the sun. This was a project of elimination. It first targeted indigenous peoples, it then targeted poor white men, and other communities would also be the target. So um, after this period of white male incarceration, it's with the passage of a series of carcerally inflected immigration laws that settlers in Los Angeles, across the American West, and in the United States Congress attempted first to deny Chinese immigrants the right to enter the settler claimed territory. Here I'm talking about the Chinese Exclusion Act and the invention of immigrant detention while later allowing Mexican migrants to work in seasonal industries but to not permanently settle north of the U.S.-Mexico border. So both the invention of immigrant detention and the criminalization of unlawful entry developed amid unambiguous campaigns to stop humans defined as non-white from making homes in the United States in general, but the U.S. West in particular. And at the opening of the 20th century, when large numbers of African-American citizens fleeing the violence of the American South, of Jim Crow, as we fled the American South and we defied the vision of manifest destiny by migrating west independently in the early 20th century. The response here in Los Angeles was swift and brutal as city authorities created the conditions for criminalizing, for caging, for expelling, for mauling, and for outright murdering African-American citizens. When you look through the rebel archive, one of the stories that you see over and over again is of the LAPD ripping out the eyeballs of African-Americans in the city. This is an animalistic project. It's a mauling that is happening in black LA. And amid all of this, between the caging up of Tongva Gabrielino peoples and the killing of African-American citizens, the Magonistas, this was a band of radical Mexican dissidents, um, crossed the U.S.-Mexico border, threatening to oust Mexico's president, Porfirio Diaz, to end white supremacy, and to restore both native and communal land holdings across Mexico. Now, if these rebels were to succeed, their uprising would not only upend U.S. capital investments in Mexico, which is really the first site of American imperialism, but could quite possibly ripple north of the border wreaking havoc for white supremacy and the enduring but always precarious colonial occupation of indigenous lands across the North American continent. 
So U.S. and Mexican authorities, including the LAPD and the L.A. Sheriff's Department, hunted the rebels down, arresting thousands of so-called malos mexicanos, bad Mexicans, across the U.S.-Mexico borderlands. In August of 1907, they kicked in the door of a shanty on Pico Boulevard and arrested the rebellion's leader. Although the rebellion's leaders were sent to solitary confinement in the L.A. County Jail, they, in particular the women who were left on the outside, figured out ways to smuggle manifestos and letters across the board, the jail walls, and continued their revolution in Mexico. So one of the, the points of that story is that incarceration does not always have its intended effects, that they try to cage up the rise of the Mexican Revolution, and in fact the, the dissidents, the um, found ways to continue their revolution from solitary confinement in the L.A. County Jail. Now, in the end, what these six stories told to de- together do, and when we align them on the arc of settler colonialism in the U.S. West, they teach us that the making and meaning of incarceration here in Los Angeles, the nation's carceral core, that over time, from the very first days of U.S. rule in the Tongva Basin, incarceration has persistently operated as a means of purging, removing, caging, containing, erasing, disappearing, and otherwise eliminating indigenous peoples and racialized outsiders. What I'm trying to argue in this book is that mass incarceration is in fact mass elimination. That is what we're seeing happening on the streets of the city. However, these stories that were saved by a rebel archive, by the people who have always fought the rise of incarceration in this city, they also teach us that those who have been targeted for criminalization and incarceration have always fought back and have never disappeared. The criminalized, the police, the caged, the ported, and the kin of the killed have always fought back. With acts of survival, of survivance more diverse, more resourceful, and more elusive than the settlers' projects of elimination, the indigenous peoples of the L.A. Basin, of the Tongva Basin, survived carceral elimination and much more. The race rebels, the unlawful border crossers, also constantly upend disappearance, as do the many queers and sexual deviants who may live within the formal racial boundaries of the settler society, but who refuse to perform its social and its sexual reproduction. And these rebels kept a record of it all. Therefore, as much as City of Inmates is about the really unsettling thread of human elimination that is winding through our jails, our prisons, and our detention centers, it is also the story of resilience and of unbroken rebellion. And so it's with this um, idea of elimination countered by resilience in mind that I want to take you more deeply into the book's fifth chapter. It's called Caged Birds. Um, This chapter in particular unmasks the very close relationship between immigration and incarceration. Um, I chose the story for tonight in particular because just last month, maybe some of you know, U.S. Attorney General Jeff Sessions announced that he's going to more aggressively prosecute um, unlawful entry into the United States. Now, what this chapter does is it tells us where that crime came from, why it was invented, and how it's at its core a racial project here in the United States. Um, And so this is very much a living history about imprisonment and incarceration. Now, in the year 1900, very few Mexicans lived in the United States. 
By 1930, 10% of the Mexican population lived north of the border, about 1.5 million people. It's an extraordinary um, population boom. This Mexican immigration boom of the early 20th century set off extraordinarily divisive debates in the United States Congress. Um, by 1924, the United States Congress had adopted what was effectively a whites-only immigration law, the 1924 um, National Origins Act, or the Quota Law. Um, they banned all Asians from entering the United States and effectively restricted um, legal entry into the United States to, to Western Europeans, and what, Europeans as well. 97% of the slots for immigrants to enter into the United States reserved for Europeans. So this is effectively a whites-only immigration law. But whenever the nativists, the most um, severe immigration restrictionists in Congress, try to place a cap on the number of Mexicans who are allowed to enter the country each year, employers across the Southwest, here in Los Angeles in particular, um, would fiercely object to those um, to their arguments. So U.S. employers had eagerly stoked this rise of Mexican immigration. They wanted Mexican workers to come to their farms, their mines, their railroads, their homes, their canning businesses here across Southern California. And by the 1920s, um, Western employers were absolutely, in their words, dependent upon Mexican workers. However, Western employers also believed that Mexican immigrants should never permanently settle in the United States. As agribusiness lobbyist S. Parker Fazell explained to Congress in 1926, um, a gentleman from here in California, quote, the Mexican is a homer. Like the pigeon, he goes home to roost. Now, those are his words, of course. And it's on his promise that Mexicans were, quote, birds of passage and, quote, not immigrants, that Mexicans would always labor, leave, and never live in the United States, that Western employers did successfully defeat all nativist proposals to place a cap upon Mexican immigration to the United States during the 1920s and the 1930s. Yet by the close of the 1920s, Mexicans were, in fact, settling in large numbers here in Los Angeles and across the borderlands. They bought homes, they started new newspapers and churches and businesses, and many started families, birthing new communities of Mexican-Americans. And here's some photos from the 1920s around Los Angeles of Mexican-American life here in the United States. Some of the things you see is people holding celebrations, people getting married, you're seeing children coming of age here, and you're also seeing, I love this picture on the, um, the third one and on, on the bottom, of three Mexican women hanging out on the beach, beach, having a good time, engaging in leisure. They are not supposed to be doing this. They are supposed to be in the canneries working and then going back to Mexico. They're not supposed to be building lives for themselves here north of the border. And you also see them here at the far right burying their dead in the United States. Now, monitoring the rise of all this life, um, all these Mexican-American communities in the southwestern states, the advocates of a whites-only immigration system charge Western employers with recklessly courting Anglo-America's racial doom at its southern border. Western employers, for their part, agreed that Mexicans should not be allowed to become U.S. citizens, but they also wanted unfettered access to an unlimited number of Mexican workers. We need the labor. They would roar back at the nativists in Congress. Now, it's amid this escalating uh, conflict between the nativists in Congress and the employers in the Southwest that a senator from Dixie suggested a compromise. 
This gentleman here, Senator Coleman Livingston Bleese, hailed from the hills of South Carolina. He entered Congress committed above all else to protecting white supremacy. Now let me be very, very clear here. He enjoyed reading extraordinarily racist poems on the floor of Congress. He advocated lynchings during the 1920s. Many public officials would not do that during the 1920s. That was even beyond the pale for them. This man did it. In 1929, as immigration restrictionists in Congress and employers in the Southwest tussled over the future of Mexican immigration to the United States, this is the man who proposed a way forward. So what happened is that according to U.S. immigration officials, Mexicans made one million authorized and lawful entries into the United States during the 1920s. What this means is that they arrived at a port of entry, they paid an entry fee, and they submitted to any required tests, such as a literacy test or a health exam. However, as U.S. immigration authorities also reported during this time period, many other Mexican immigrants did not register for lawful entry. Why would they not do this? Well, one, it was an inconvenience to go to a U.S. port of entry when you could simply cross the border, as people had been doing for generations. Second, U.S. Um, authorities, immigration authorities, subjected Mexican immigrants in particular to humiliating delay lousing practices and kerosene baths. So why would you go all the way over there so them to, for them to subject you to a kerosene bath? They weren't going to do it. So instead of traveling to these ports of entry, Mexicans informally crossed the border at will, as both U.S. and Mexican citizens had done for generations. Now, when this debate in Congress stalled over how many Mexicans to allow into the United States every year, what police did, which was quite crafty, was he shifted the conversation to stopping unlawful or unauthorized border crossings by Mexicans. And he did this by suggesting the criminalization of unmonitored entry into the United States. According to Belize's bill, unlawfully entering the country would be a misdemeanor and unlawfully re returning to the country after deportation would be a felony. The idea here was to force Mexican immigrants into an authorized and a monitored stream that could be turned on and turned off at will at the U.S. ports of entry. Any immigrant to enter the United States outside of the bounds of this stream would become a criminal, subject to fines, imprisonment, and ultimately deportation or forced removal from the country. But make no mistake about it, this was a crime that was designed to impact Mexican immigrants in particular. Now, neither the agribusinessmen nor the restrictionists registered any objections to Belize's plan, and Congress passed Belize's bill the Immigration Act of March 4, 1929, and this dramatically altered the story of race and imprisonment across the United States. Um, with stunning precision, the criminalization of unlawful entry caged thousands of Mexico's proverbial birds of passage. Within one year, U.S. attorneys prosecuted more than 7,000 cases. By the end of the 1930s, they had prosecuted more than 44,000 cases. Mexicans never comprised fewer than 85% of all of the people incarcerated for unlawful entry. Some years, Mexicans comprised more than 99% of the people incarcerated for unlawful entry. What this meant was that by the end of the 1930s, tens of thousands of Mexicans had been criminalized, arrested, prosecuted, convicted, and imprisoned for unlawful entry. 
But there was a problem. Until the 1930s, the U.S. federal prison system was very small. We really only had these three federal prisons and a few other small reformatories. There was not a single federal prison in the U.S.-Mexico border region. So to cage up Mexico's unlawful border crossers, we had to expand the U.S. federal prison system. We had to invest in incarceration. The first prison that was built to hold Mexico's unlawful border crossers is called La Tuna. It still stands today, just outside of El Paso, Texas. Now, opened in April of 1932, La Tuna was a fairly large prison farm with a capacity of about 420 inmates. Within just a few months, it was full beyond capacity. And already, the Federal Bureau of Prisons had to go out and look for more sites, new sites, to incarcerate Mexicans convicted of unlawful entry. So a man named James Bennett, the assistant director of the U.S. Bureau of Prisons, went on an expedition into southern Arizona. What he actually did is he jumped on a donkey, and he took a 25-mile trek that wound up and through the mountains of Santa, the Santa Catalina Mountains near Tucson. What Bennett promised the U.S. Bureau of Prisons is that he would find, and I quote, a sufficiently isolated place to camp some of our Mexican friends. At the base of those mountains, Bennett found an abandoned camp where prisoners could be put in tents and put to work building a new road. Um, He named the facility after the nearest town, Tucson Prison Camp Number 10. Now, opened in the summer of 1933, Tucson Prison Camp Number 10 was a minimum security camp. It was a labor camp in particular. The first warden at Tucson was a man named James Gaffney who had worked in Alabama prior to his transfer to Arizona. And it's with the help of a few unarmed prison guards that Warden Gaffney supervised the inmates as they built a road up, through, and across the mountains to a little town known as Oracle. There in Oracle, the settlers in Arizona hoped to build a health resort where they could get away during the the sweltering summer months. Um, I should say that a couple years ago when um, Central American children began coming across the border, many of them were sent to this facility um, to be detained. And the folks in Oracle um, rose up in resistance, not to advocate for the release of these children, but they didn't want to have undocumented children placed in their community. The irony is I don't think any of them know that their community was actually created and built and made possible by the labor of undocumented men who were imprisoned at Tucson Prison Camp Number 10. Now, this road work at Tucson Prison Camp um, progressed, but Warden Gaffney chafed at his assignment in the borderlands. As he said, he had a perfect, perfect escape record, meaning no escapes, back in Alabama. He maintained that perfect escape record because um, they had armed guards who would shoot people down if they tried to run. In Tucson, he couldn't shoot people down, so people ran um, quite frequently. Tucson had the highest escape record during the 1930s. Um, here are the men building the road to Oracle. Yes, please. Why You know, they, they don't say in the record why they weren't armed. My guess is because they're immigration offenders. I'm, I'm not sure. Um, here are some of the stacks and stacks and stacks of reward cards that were being issued to bring these men back. Um, Warden Gaffney had an explanation for why so many Mexicans were running away. In his words, these escapees were, quote, young Mexicans with very few brains, if any. 
I would suggest it was in fact a very intelligent assessment of camp conditions that drove them to run from Tucson prison camp number 10. Building the road to Oracle was extraordinarily dangerous. There were two deaths and numerous injuries within just the first year of work. Now Gaffney also was a man with experience in the southern penal system, one of the most brutal penal systems in the United States. And what he did is he took the tactics and the practices that he had developed against African American prisoners in particular in Alabama and transferred them to the Arizona borderlands. Now one of the penalties in in Alabama prisons was that when someone spoke up or was disobedient, you would put them in what's called the box. Are you all familiar with the box? It's basically a structure about this high and about two feet or three feet wide. And you stick someone in the box. You hold them like this for several days on end. You effectively break their body because they cannot move a muscle for multiple days and sometimes multiple weeks. They sit in their own urine. They sit in their own feces and they bake inside of these boxes. What Gaffney did is he transferred this tactic to the Arizona borderlands. But what he did is he went out to the desert, dug a hole, and dropped people in it and put a steel grate on top of it and let them bake out there in the desert. So guess what the Mexicans did? They ran. Anytime they could get a chance, they ran. Okay, now, despite the establishment of La Tuna in 1932 and Tucson Prison Camp in 1933, the Federal Bureau of Prisons still faced a carceral capacity crisis in Southern California in particular. You're all thinking, where the hell is Los Angeles in the story? I'm getting there. In particular, federal authorities in Southern California had no facility to hold immigration offenders. Without any federal prison in Southern California, most of the immigration offenders had to be sent to county jails. Um, They, in particular, were sent to the L.A. County Jail to serve their time. But by the late 1930s, the L.A. County Jail was overcrowded and couldn't take any more immigration offenders. So in 1938, to address the federal um, carceral capacity crisis in California, the Bureau of Prisons opened Terminal Island, um, a federal detention and prison just outside of Los Angeles. Now, Terminal Island is still an operating prison. This is where it began. Point here is that by the end of the 1930s, the criminalization of unlawful entry had bulged the federal penal system and expanded it across the U.S.-Mexico borderlands from El Paso to Tucson to Los Angeles. As intended, Mexicans comprised the overwhelming majority of immigration offenders. Having agreed upon nothing else... But the need to control Mexican settlement north of the border. The nervous nativists and the Western employers of the 1920s had made a penal compromise to confine Mexican migration to authorized and presumably controllable pathways. Now, in capturing Mexico's so-called birds of passage who dared to violate the negotiated terms of managed entry, Mexican imprisonment boomed across the borderlands, put the first federal prison in Los Angeles, and filled it with Mexicans who, after term of incarceration, would be deported, forcibly removed from the country. And here I should also add that Terminal Island, like Tucson, begins to hold Mexican immigration offenders. But during World War II, can anyone guess who begins to be sent to these facilities? Japanese and Japanese Americans who defy internment and are imprisoned for their defiance are sent to Tucson and sent to Terminal Island. So these facilities become recycled. All right. Um, 
The issue, though, is that stopping Mexican settlement not north of the border, not Mexican migration, not Mexican labor, Mexican settlement north of the border, was also a project aggressively pursued by city elites across the Southwest. And this was nowhere more important than in our hometown, Los Angeles. Now, why is that? Well, L.A. by 1929 was home to the largest Mexican population anywhere in the United States. In fact, Los Angeles had the largest number of Mexicans in any city other than Mexico City. Um, Yet in Los Angeles, many local elites regarded our hometown as the Eden of the Saxon home seeker. Aren't my words, that's theirs. In fact, they aggressively pursued this idea that L.A. was the Aryan city of the sun or the nation's white spot. So the question was, could city leaders in the Aryan city of the sun contain the rise of Mexican-American life? Could local employers, as promised before Congress, extract sweat from Mexican laborers while denying Mexican people the right to full and permanent lives in the city? And these were the unanswered questions of race and labor during the 1920s. In fact, they are the unanswered questions of race and labor in the United States today that made Los Angeles and make Los Angeles ground zero for an unfolding social experiment in the pursuit of Mexican permanence in the United States. Now, the LAPD in particular did its part in stilling the rebirth of Mexican Los Angeles. What they did is they began incarcerating, arresting and incarcerating larger and larger numbers of Mexicans in the city. Public order charges led the incarceration of Mexicans here in Los Angeles. This is important because the discourse in the papers and by the police chiefs and by others was that Mexicans were violent criminals and needed to be locked up. But in fact, when you look at the documents, it is public order charges, vagrancy, public drunkenness, that um, led to the incarceration of about 86% of the arrest here in, in Los Angeles, of Mexicans in Los Angeles. Now, this charge profile matters because much like U.S. immigration restrictions, public order charges restrict how a person can live or their right to be within a jurisdiction. Of course, public order charges um, broadly restrict how any person can occupy public space. You can't pee in public. You can't sleep in public. But they disproportionately and they systematically target people who are underemployed and undersheltered. If you have a home or if you have a job, you pee in home or at your job. If you don't have either of those two things, you can do it in public, right? So the underemployed and the poorly sheltered are disproportionately impacted by public order charges. During the 1920s and 1930s, Mexicans were certainly poorly sheltered and underemployed. Um, they lived much more of their lives in public than homeowners and the regularly employed. By imprisoning Mexicans on public order charges, for imprisoning them for living, for loving, for sleeping, and for lounging in public, that was their crime. The LAPD effectively stripped thousands of Mexicans of the right to be in the city, of the right to live in the city. And here is an image from the 1930s of Mexicans hanging out in what we now know as Olvera Street in the plaza. But Mexicans fought back in the city. Among them were, were a group of Mexican mothers known as Las Madres Mexicanas who raised money to support the large number of Mexican men who were being incarcerated in the city during the 1920s and 1930s. One of the men that they helped was a man named Pedro Gonzalez. Um, and in so doing, they countered an extraordinary move made by authorities in Los Angeles to cage the very heart of Mexican life in the United States. Have any of you heard of this man, Pedro Gonzalez? One of the most important figures in Los Angeles history and in Mexican-American history. 
Now, Pedro was a typical immigrant of the early 20th century. He was born in the late 19th century Mexico. He crossed the border during or soon after the Mexican Revolution. He did not come alone. He brought his family with him, and he moved straight to Los Angeles, as many people were doing. When he arrived, he engaged in casual labor at the dock. At the dock, he liked to sing while he worked. And a manager overheard his voice and was like, you know, you sing pretty good. Why don't you do some more of that? He gained his confidence. He saw an ad that um, some local uh, radio stations, employers were looking for people to write jingles so they could sell Folgers coffee and toothpaste and whatnot to the growing Spanish-speaking population of the region. And by 1929, Pedro had his own band and his radio program. They were largely selling these um, products to the Mexican population, but he was also cultivating community among Mexicans in L.A. He was the first person to broadcast in Spanish from Los Angeles, transmitting on an extraordinarily strong and clear signal between the hours of about 4 a.m. and 6 a.m. This signal reached into northern Mexico, it reached into Arizona, and even got into New Mexico. What he did was he was reaching an audience of Mexicans who were waking for work in the borderlands. For them, Pedro belted out what are known as corridos, Mexican folk songs, that tell the stories of everyday living. Now, historians who write about Pedro like to talk about this one song that he wrote about a dishwasher and his struggles with racism and labor in the United States. Pedro certainly sang that song, but most of all, what Pedro did is he sang love songs. Indeed, Pedro's program did not play the beats of labor, itinerancy, or marginality that employers or Anglo-Americans envisioned as the sole rhythm of Mexican life north of the border. He strummed, in fact, he hollered about love. He also dissented against the mass deportations of the 1930s, and he rallied his listeners to join him. All of this made Pedro Gonzalez the most famous and, in fact, the most infamous Mexican living in the United States during this time period. Now, as Pedro's popularity soared, his band, Los Madrugadores, the early risers, became one of the busiest Mexican bands playing north of the border. And to advertise their shows, he had images like this made up and plastered on, um, like, on the sides of buildings, on a street post across the borderlands. What's important about these kinds of images is that these men, these Mexican men, are not striking poses of casual labor and itinerancy, the imagined place of Mexicans in the United States. Rather, these flyers disseminate the image of a cohort of Mexican men without a pick or a shovel in the frame. It's with their instruments in their hands that Pedro and Los Madrugadores made their living by serenading a community of Mexicans singing and dancing, living and loving north of the border. For this, for serenading the rise of Mexican-American life in the United States, Pedro was caged. He was made a prisoner here in Los Angeles. Now, it's the district attorney, Boran Fitz, in particular, who wanted Pedro's Spanish-language program off of U.S. airways. In his mind, only English could be on U.S. airways. But no law existed to remove Pedro from the radio. Pro- from the radio. So the DA worked with the LAPD to remove Pedro from the streets, to eliminate him from the city. Um, over a, a series of years, the LAPD arrested Pedro multiple times on trumped-up charges, every time the courts and the judges threw the cases out. But in 1934, the police cultivated testimony from two girls, stating that Pedro had taken them to a hotel for sex. Um, 
Pedro denied the charges, and later one of the young women recanted her testimony. She said that the LAPD had taken her to a warehouse and threatened her with juvenile detention if she did not charge Pedro with this crime. But the judge held Pedro for trial, and after a lengthy trial, Pedro was convicted and sentenced to serve 50 years in San Quentin State Prison. So the man who broadcasted the full frequencies of Mexican life in the United States was going to prison for a very long time. But while Pedro's trial unfolded, he was denied bail and booked at the Los Angeles County Jail. In the L.A. County Jail, Pedro joined the growing number of Mexicans behind bars in the United States. And incarcerated, he snapped a photo that captured a new rhythm of life in the capital city of Mexican America. Pedro's photo, which he took here in the corridors of the L.A. County Jail, captures Mexican man, men standing within a site of incarceration. Who these men were or why they were in prison, Pedro does not share. But the note on the back of this Im- image simply says, L.A. County Jail, early 1930s. But we know that most likely... These men had been arrested by local police on public order charges. Remember, 86% of, the, of Mexicans arrested in the city during this time period, they were arrested on public order charges. Or they were being held in the county jail on immigration offenses. Remember, we don't get Terminal Island until 1938. In prison for living in public or for entering the United States without authorization, they were caged by a settler campaign to stop Mexicans from living and loving north the border. Now, of course, it did not work. As we all know, Mexicans continued to lawfully, unlawfully cross the border and to live full and permanent lives in the United States. But as Jeff Sessions' recent recent vow to aggressively enforce Belize's law, that is the law he is threatening to enforce. As this makes perfectly clear, this is a story of race, imprisonment, and immigration, and removal that is very far from over. So that is my talk for tonight. That is the overview of the book. It's a quick look at one of its chapters, but each one of these chapters is really an origin story of the rise of mass incarceration in Los Angeles and across the United States. It's a story that begins with indigenous populations being targeted for criminalization and caging up, and then runs through a variety of communities whose presence in the settler state is something that is unwanted and needs to be eliminated and removed. And it ends with the story of African Americans and police brutality here in the city. So thank you so much for listening. If you have any questions, I'd be happy to take them. Yes? Uh-huh. Then I'll see. So the free speech survived. Free speech survived this type of prosecution. But English only, how does that weave into the history of because I can I can see how they really want to fight those airwaves, and I'm just trying to think. They probably didn't let that go really easily, right? Well, c- certainly. So the question is about free speech in the U.S. airways. I mean, there's a separate set of debates that happen and struggles that happen over free speech and the wobblies and the socialists in particular in the early 20th century here in Los Angeles, also at La Plaza. Um, L.A. passes a series, like many other cities, of very restrictive public speaking bans and that catch up the magonistas and the socialists and others. And lots of people are actually incarcerated on um, violating public speaking orders, not getting the right permission having too many people who are blocking the street, whatnot. So this is a bit of a separate, the public, the free speech issue is a little bit separate for the, the radio airwaves piece. I don't know the particularities of the story, but I think if we turn on the radio today, we know that Spanish can certainly be heard on the airwaves today, and there has been no ban placed upon that. So it's always that capitalist 
fight for the market that's allowing the privilege. Um, but there, it's that war between, so it's market capitalism that's driving the integration. Yeah, so this is a book that is about capitalism and it's about white supremacy. But the, the theme that I'm trying to lift up is it's also about settler colonialism. That incarceration has a project of extracting as much profit that we can out of caged bodies along the way. But that's not the punchline. The punchline is elimination. That Richard Nixon, who invented the war on crime and the war on drugs, once predicted that African Americans will not live another 500 years in this country. This is the mind. This is the man who gave us the war on drugs. They're going to make a whole lot of money off incarcerated people along the way. They're going to use incarcerated labor to make Sunset Boulevard, to build L.A. High School, to build La Plaza, all of that or go across the country and find other ways in which incarcerated labor is being used. But that's not the punchline. The punchline is removal and elimination. So that's sort of the story. I want to talk, we have to talk about capitalism. We have to talk about white supremacy. But I'm trying to move this conversation just one step farther to talk about um, what's really at stake. And that is that not all of us who are in this room are really supposed to be here. And again, in the words of Audre Lorde, we were never meant to survive. And we can see that happening in the prisons. Let me, uh, just because there was one more, let me, yes, ma'am. Okay. Uh, you talk about the resilience, that, uh, you know, resilience of, of, of people, the, the women that have the men in their jail, the resilience, and, and the, the fact is they, 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 they want, you know, because there's a lot of, <laughs> Right. So, one of the ma- major threads of this book is about. I mean, it's a very sad story. It's a very, very sad story about all of the communities that have been targeted for elimination through incarceration. That is a heavy, it's a story that weighs heavy on my soul. The thankful part is that we are still here. And we are here because of the work of all these rebels and dissidents who fought and created space for us. We are here because of the people who found ways to hide and survive. The resilience is just as real as the eliminatory capacity of incarceration. And usually when I give these talks, I bring one of the organizers who's working today in Los Angeles in the struggle against mass incarceration, and they can speak to the ongoing campaigns against mass incarceration writ large, but also um, the soul of the struggle about finding space for all peoples, all forms of humanity on this land, in this place. So you're right, it's, it's... the, the book is about the two. It's about elimination and resilience. Um, it would just be too sad of a story to read or to write without the story of resilience. And Paige is a big part of that. Yes? Um, do you touch upon like, the forced sterilization that was happening at that time, too? The, was it the prisons and the asylums? Yeah, so she raises the point about forced sterilization, which has happened to incarcerated peoples. Here in Los Angeles, we've had, like, No More Bebes. It was a documentary that recently came out and exposed what was happening around World War II with um, Latina and black women in particular. I don't talk about that story, but I'm really glad that you raised that point. One of the things that the six stories in this book, I mean, they're very six particular stories, but one of the things that they, they do is they invite you to think about 
the other ways in which elimination has happened in the jails, around the jails, through the jails, or somewhere else. Um, so often I'll get people who, I haven't had actually anyone talk about sterilization, so I'm glad that you brought that to the table, but people will talk about other instances, other mechanisms of elimination, and that's very much the conversation that I want to encourage with this book. So I'm glad that you, I don't talk about it, but I'm very, very glad that it's a book that um, made you think about that and raised it for you. Yeah, well, let me just make sure everyone gets a chance and then we can circle back. Yeah? Um, from the timeline that you're talking about in the book as, like, the rise of mass incarceration kind of aligns with the New Deal and the bigger, like, mm-hmm. white supremacist projects at that time, um, I read that that's kind of been a reaction to the labor movement and to more radical like what you were talking about with like the Mexican Revolutionary. I was wondering if you had any thoughts on that right now, kind of like a over the hump of like social justice movement and what that means for Muslim folks mm-hmm. and like the cultural and probably. Legal uh, institutional backlash that we're about to see. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So, one of the things I'm trying to talk about is the way in which carcerality or this kind of logic and culture of punishment has been with us since the very beginning, and it has shifted and has ebbed and has targeted multiple communities over time according to the specific needs of that moment. And we're definitely in a moment where, where our Muslim brothers and sisters are being targeted and criminalized um, and locked up. So I'm not sure exactly where this is going, but I think the issue that you're raising is a very strong possibility. We were on a track towards something called decarceration. I wouldn't call it liberation, but we were on a track towards decarceration. That has abruptly shifted within the last two months, largely with the announcements of U.S. Attorney General Jeff Sessions. One, the the increased prosecutions of unlawful entry, and then two, just this month, saying that the war on drugs is back on. We will undoubtedly see more black, brown, indigenous, and impoverished youth being sent to prison because of that. Um, but the war on terror is also an evolving story in what's happening with who's allowed to be in a white Christian settler state. So, yes, I, I hear where you're going. As a historian, I'm not comfortable with making predictions. The economists do that, right? Um, but I think it would fit within a pattern of the flexibility of the carceral state to dance and to move and to incorporate a new threat, including Muslim brothers and sisters. Yes? I, I was really fascinated by you mentioning of the kind of uh, punishment of non-productivity. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, and yes, I remember you mentioned specifically in that, that time period where it was like poor white men who were being mm-hmm. incarcerated at a higher rate. I was wondering if you found a similar trajectory in other periods. Oh, that's a really good question. I don't know if I thought about it, but maybe we can think about it together, right? You can think about the ways in which vagrancy laws were used very aggressive against African Americans in the American South during that same time period. And that's, perhaps they were electing to be unproductive or to seek other employment, and you could they criminalize that, would lock them up. So if you were found without work, which 
you could easily do if you left one planter and you were going to another, or if you were trying to escape the south and go north, you were effectively unemployed and thereby a vagrant. That would be a, a, another example of criminalizing an unproductive moment. I think that's absolutely true. So again, we're talking about the, the threat of capitalism that's through all of this, this profit-making and the criminalization of unproductivity that our bodies must be at work at all times. Um, I think we could think together and find other examples of that historically. It looks like you have an idea. Well, I had a, 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 another question, which is I think you mentioned specifically that some of those men were believed at least to be homosexual. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, I, do you find that there are other patterns of yeah. promoting certain kinds of sexuality, you know, even in other lives, privileged positions, that kind of like tie to these things? Yeah. And then it, it seems also complicated by the fact that there's also an attempt to restrict people who aren't white from having more children or to be more kids. So kind of like going both ways, like trying to control, I don't know, mm-hmm. skin production. To me, this is the value of settler colonialism as a concept because it has it's very capacious to think about the variety of ways that um, race is disciplined, that sexuality is disciplined. So if the white settler state is racially exclusive and has to be internally sexually reproductive, right, that is a call for heterosexuality and in heteronormative families. That call has shifted a bit over time to include gay and lesbian coupling, but adoption Right? That we must be internally reproductive, but we can ha- it can happen in new ways. But it is always confining to the story or in the complexity of human sexuality. So that, to me, is the sort of the value of this concept, is that we can talk about capitalism. We can talk about patriarchy. We can talk about white supremacy. We can talk about all of that within one shared thread. So one of the things that's been happening on the ground is that the plantation-to-prison narrative is extraordinarily valuable. We, I can, it's extraordinarily valuable. Without that optic, that analytic, we wouldn't be at the place where we are of resistance right now. But it's very difficult to find, for a variety of communities to find their history in that story. And there are other stories that must be told so that we all can march together to end mass incarceration. And settler colonialism is one way to do that. It's not the only way to think about the rise of mass incarceration. But it's a bit of a way that I'm using to sort of elbow open a little bit of space for a lot of aggrieved communities to talk about what is happening to us in a variety of ways. Okay, yes? The, the problem with your argument mm-hmm. is that I don't think identity is a real strong position. I understand identity and history, but we are experiencing the greatest wealth divide in history, and it is accelerating at an expanse that the argument for race can't even begin to approach. There are judges now who are saying, if a person doesn't have a place to sleep, they have nowhere else to sleep except in public. And this is incorporating vast numbers of white people. And we're seeing um, some blame factors and some, you know, some mechanisms going into play. But the fact remains, we will all eventually be in a set that's not participating in institutions. We're just not. We will be falling out economically out of what the global economy is moving towards. And so it doesn't matter our gender, our sexuality, our race, none of that really matters. We'll all be in this boat, and we'll be getting gradually browner. You know, just, we'll all be becoming one big mass of sufferingness. So, you know, 
I don't know. I mean, I, I mean, looking at the Democratic Party reforming, this whole identity argument, I think is it's a, it's a good way to empower people and, and emblazon history, which is valid. But I don't know if it's so great for a social movement and unification in terms of reality of what's going on with capitalism. I just think it's a little idealistic and um, somewhat pictorial way to portray significant problems that are happening regarding late capitalism. And it's not giving us um, the mechanism we need to fight what's happening to us rapidly, more rapidly than the argument of racism. That's my Do you have an answer? Yeah, so I definitely have a response. So the question or the comment was about um, the importance of race as a concept when we are confronting um, late capitalism and a problem that is essentially an economic problem or a problem of capitalism. Was, was that, was that fairly? A retreat of resource to the wealthiest families in the world. Sure. So Rapidly. Yeah, absolutely. And I don't in any way want to excise capitalism from the story. In fact, it's actually core to the story. But we have to remember that capitalism was made through the slave trade, that race and racialization, rape, racial capitalism, they're part and parcel of the same thing. I would never, I, I actually strongly disagree with you that we can disentangle racialization and dehumanization from profit making and capitalism, that we have to talk about them together, that have you, I don't know if you've read the work of Cedric Robinson on racial capitalism. That might be a good thing for you to read, and then we can kind of debate together about the importance of race in the formation of capitalism, but also... The end game of capitalism is free There's no... I'll not fight you on that. Yeah. The other thing is that race is, as Stuart Hall says, the way in which we experience class, and it's an extraordinarily viable way of thinking about how to protest capitalism as well. So I think you, I mean, this is a very old debate, right? This goes back to certainly the debates among the communists of the 1920s and 1930s. Is it race or is it class? You and I could go on all night about this. No one has resolved this problem. I am of a different position. I think that race is absolutely central to the analytic of the growth and the expansion and the making and the meaning, the operation of capitalism, certainly here in the United States. That maybe we could talk a little bit differently differently in other places, but certainly here in the United States. And will race always exist? Well, I don't know if race is always going to exist. I hope it doesn't. Right? Race is fundamentally about dehumanization, about creating an other. Whether or not it will always exist, I, that I, I can't possibly answer for you. We can work together, though, yeah. and try to bring it to an end. Absolutely. Right on, sis. <laughs> um, is there any other questions or comments? That was oh, you're welcome. Yeah, thank you. Okay, I think we're done. Thank you. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.